Well, there's a number of things to uh, be rather uh, discomforted by in this passage, but let's start small, shall we? It's actually hard to know why it is that Paul, here in Romans chapter 13, makes, well, it feels as though a bit of a change of focus from Romans chapter 12. I mean, Romans chapter 12 is mostly about uh, obligations that Christians have for one another in ordinary circumstances. So he says things like, let love be genuine, but also obligations that Christians have to one another in more challenging circumstances. So he says, uh, bless those who persecute you. That's Romans 12. And here in Romans 13, there seems to be a shift of obligations to governing authorities, and that shift seems to be a little bit jarring. Now, it could be that uh, back in Romans 12, verse 21 in particular, when he says, do not be overcome by evil, it could very well be that some of the Roman Christians that are receiving Paul's letter uh, would uh, anticipate that, well... If I'm not to be overcome by evil, I know who is trying to overcome me with evil, and that is a governing authority. And it may also be that when Paul tells the Roman Christians in Romans 12 not to exercise vengeance towards their enemies, it could very well be that some in the church, Paul anticipates, are thinking that their governing authorities are actually those enemies. It's just hard to say why uh, Paul is here talking about governing authorities, and it just seems to be a little bit jarring. Well, Paul believes that what he's about to say here in Romans chapter 13 is just as practical, just as needful as what he has already said in Romans chapter 12. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, Christians in Romans chapter 12 are to use their gifts for the good of the church body. They are to love one another with brotherly affection, he goes on in Romans 12 to say. Uh, Christians are to contribute to one another's needs, to rejoice with rejoicers and to weep with weepers, to humbly associate with and work alongside those who everyone else seems to avoid. And these are all ways in which Christians present themselves to God as living sacrifices sacrifice is holy and acceptable to him. Doesn't that sound lovely? It makes such sense that those would be things that would guide us as we live as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. But to Paul, submission to authorities, obedience before authorities, paying taxes... These are equally a part of our holiness before God. Now, we may not like this, and we may debate details about how this ought to be done in our lives, but let's not forget what Paul is talking about in 12 and in 13, living in a holy and acceptable way before God so that our lives are living sacrifices. Well, what Paul is saying here in 13, verses 1 through 7, I think is simply this, that since all authority on earth is subject to King Jesus, our submission actually becomes an avenue for Christian holiness. Since all authority on earth is subject to King Jesus, our submission actually becomes an avenue for Christian holiness. The three things I want us to notice in this passage. Uh, first, the uh, themes of submission and authority uh, take, uh, take front and center attention. And then next, I want to move on to the immediate context. How a Roman Christian might actually receive Romans chapter 13 
as it is being read to them in the church. And then finally, I want to close with a few applications. But let's begin with the subject matter of submission and authority. You know, verse 1 of our passage, it's really the controlling element of the entire passage. Here in verse 1, Paul introduces the role of submission in the Christian life, and then how that submission is attached to the source of authority. First, the important role of submission in the Christian life. In verse 1, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And that phrase, to be subject to, is to submit. That's the word. Submission is actually very important to Paul because elsewhere in his writings, he will use that very same word. Now, to be sure, he's already used this word in Romans chapter 10. There, he tells Roman Christians to submit to God's righteousness. He knows that the people that he is writing to, that they want to submit to their own sense of right and wrong, to establish their own sense of right and wrong, not God's sense of right and wrong. That's true for all of us. We know what that feels like. It's our normal uh, operation to define right and wrong on our own terms in a way that suits us in that very moment. And Paul corrects this in Romans 10, verse 3, by telling us that we are to submit to God's righteousness. So, you see, uh, submission has already been broached in this letter. But in other letters that Paul writes, he tells us to uh, submit. Uh, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 16 that we are to submit to leaders in the church, uh, not merely those leaders who are elders who, or who are deacons, to, but to submit to fellow workers and laborers who are serving us in the church. He also tells wives to submit to their husbands on no fewer than three different occasions. And this word figures largely uh, in those admonitions. He tells slaves to submit to their masters, which we extend to employees uh, today, submitting to their employers. And then finally, he says in Ephesians 5, he says that all Christians are to submit to one another, almost instinctively submit to one another in the life of the church body. Now, we can acknowledge that there are slight differences to these kinds of submissions, as Paul uses the word to submit. And uh, certainly they are not all applied, these submissions, in exactly the same way. And these kinds of submissions, they account for different kinds of relationships, no doubt at all. However, to Paul, submission is actually not an incidental matter that some Christians experience and some Christians do not. He believes that submission is an important part to every Christian's life and touches every Christian. Well, let's look at our passage again. What do you think Paul means by submission? Maybe this is a very light form of submission, but really, if you jump forward a little bit to verse 2, he is actually defining what he means by submission. He says, submission is to not resist. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Three times, two different Greek words, but three times Paul is telling us what submission is. To submit is to avoid resisting. It's to avoid opposing authority. It's to avoid setting yourself up against authority. Now, Paul's actually serious here. Three times he tells us 
that we are not to resist. Now, things are getting dicey, aren't they? I mean, obviously, we here in this particular room have a strong distaste for submission. I'm not making a particular uh, critique of you. I'm critiquing myself. We do have a strong distaste for submission. I have a strong distaste for submission. Nobody wants to submit, I suppose. But we need to remember that the work of Christ on our behalf, Christ's work for your salvation and for my salvation, do you... No, of course you do, but I'm going to tell you anyway, that that work involved his submission. Paul has already taught us in Romans 5.19, As by Adam's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by Jesus' obedience the many will be made righteous. Do you hear that? Our Lord and Savior submitted and he obeyed. We can look also at Philippians 2.8, uh, words about our, our Savior being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we are actually thankful that our Lord and Savior did not resist submitting to his Father, even as we instinctively, so it seems, resist submitting all the time. Submission is important. Now, let's move on and uh, talk about the subject of authority. Now, notice how Paul, he attaches the role of submission to his discussion of authority. Again, verse 1 of Romans 13, Paul says this. He says, For there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Now, who holds authority? Authority is actually, it's actually very important to Paul. Who holds authority is important, and that is God. I mean, didn't we just this morning hear from uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 8, God saying, by me kings reign, by me princes rule. Or Jeremiah 27, uh, where God says, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me, even to King Nebuchadnezzar, which is the context of Jeremiah 27. Or we can think of uh, Daniel chapter 2. God says that uh, he is the one who removes kings. He is the one who sets up kings. Uh, Later uh, in Daniel, where God says to King Nebuchadnezzar himself, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And our Lord and Savior at his trial before Pilate, says to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So let's not forget this. Even though our passage does not mention Jesus directly, to affirm that God is sovereign over all earthly authorities is actually to affirm that Christ is the true king above all other kings. He is the one who said after his resurrection, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is God's rightfully anointed king. Paul says in Colossians 1 that Jesus is above all thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. 
At the very last book of the Bible, what is Jesus called? He's called the ruler of kings on earth and the Lord of lords and king of kings. So not only did Jesus serve as an example to us in his submission, he now rules over all of the governing authorities that we have over us, local, regional, and national. Even those ruling authorities that we in our heart of hearts say, I will never submit. Even though Romans 13 is a lot to offend us, this actually should greatly comfort us, Paul's attachment of authority to submission. R.C. Sproul says that there are no maverick molecules loose in the universe that could possibly disrupt the plans of God, but uh, neither are there maverick rulers who somehow slip through God's plans and disrupt the authority of the king who presently reigns, our Savior, our King Jesus. Well, how do you think that this actually applies to our lives, this connection between submission and authority? Well, I think it applies to our lives in pretty uncomfortable ways. And let me just give you a taste of that discomfort, and then I'll conclude the sermon here a bit later. Now think about a couple of questions. In your refusal to submit to those in authority, are you actually doubting the sovereign plan of God and the rightful rule of King Jesus? Is that what you're, is that what you're doing when you refuse to submit? Are you doubting the rightful rule of King Jesus? If I'm trying to resist submitting to authorities, what then do I think about God's sovereignty? In my resistance, my refusal to submit, does that somehow impact my doctrine of God's sovereignty and my trust in that doctrine? We, we, we might actually reverse the question and ask it this way. Do you believe in God's sovereign plan and his authority of Jesus? Isn't that a delightful question? Yes, absolutely I do then why is it that you are refusing to submit? It's, a, it's an uncomfortable connection, I'll admit. Very uncomfortable. And we're going to revisit that at the very end of the sermon. But let's make our way through this passage. What do you think is the immediate context? Meaning, if you can imagine Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, being read in the congregation at Rome in the first century, what do you think they were thinking as they heard this? Hmm. Well, Romans uh, 13 was read to this congregation in probably uh, AD 57. And then someone in the congregation stands up and says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Wow, well, what would the audience be thinking? Well, Paul's writing to Christians who happen to live in the very capital of the Roman Empire during the reign of Emperor Nero. So presumably there'd be a handful of people in the congregation that, as Romans 13.1 is being read, they're thinking about Nero. He's somewhere uh, in their mind. Nero, he reigned from uh, 38 to 68. Paul is writing here in AD 57, nearly the middle of Nero's reign. And this is pretty important because from 38 to 57, the beginning of Nero's reign to when Paul uh, writes this letter, uh, Nero was widely known for what? For being a peaceful ruler. The Roman philosopher Seneca, uh, at just about this very same time that Paul is writing his letter to the Roman Christians, uh, Seneca writes that Nero could actually uh, boast of having ruled the state at a time when no blood had been shed. That's quoting Seneca. 
As Seneca goes on to say that the arms of Nero were for adornment of alone. The arms that Nero wore were for adornment alone, not for war. I mean, Nero was known to be this fair and just ruler until a few years beyond the time that this letter was written. In fact, historians admit that Nero ruled well because, actually, he didn't make very many of the ruling decisions of his time. Uh, The statesman Seneca, along with a very good prefect, were this dynamic duo that made the Roman administrative powerhouse a powerhouse for good and not for bad. Now, of course, very late in Nero's reign, he psychologically unravels, exiles his mom, has her murdered, executes innocent people for treason, banishes his wife uh, for ha- uh, in order to uh, marry his mistress. Uh, but that was later, at least five years after Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. Nero came famously unglued and ended up being the first emperor to commit suicide, but it happened rapidly and it happened at the very, very end of his reign. And so when Romans was written, Nero was a just and fair ruler led by two able-bodied leaders. So many commentators, when they look at Romans 13, verses 3 through 5, about this ruler who pursues the good, well, many commentators find that this may actually be a reference to Nero himself. Well, before we think about that, do you want to know what Nero was actually famous for at this time? There was one thing that he was very well known for at this time. Peaceful administration, well-ordered administration, but he was very well known for taxation. Now, doesn't this tell us something? Look at verses 6 and 7 of our passage. That may actually give us an enormous clue as to what the Romans thought when they were reading uh, Romans chapter 13 for the first time. They thought of Nero because Paul spends two verses just on the subject of taxation. Now look at Romans uh, 12 verse 6. Paul says to pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. In verse 6, when he says, attending to this very thing, he's literally saying that the authorities are religiously devoted to this very thing. That may be a clue that Paul knows about the reign of Nero. And it may be a clue that Roman Christians had had enough of Nero's taxes and knew very well that Nero was religiously devoted to taxation. And so look what Paul says in verse 7. Pulls no punches at all. Uh, He says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Paul says this is an obligation. Uh, Taxes uh, and revenue. Anything that that Nero asks of you. Duties or uh, fees or permits. uh, Give it to him. You are obligated to do so. Well, now Jesus spoke this way as well when... Uh, He was being tested. Render uh, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And Paul says, pay all of the taxes of Nero, even though he is a man who is famously well-known to be devoted to taxes. Now, these two verses, 6 and 7, on taxation, they seem to suggest the context of Nero's rule up until the point of Paul writing this letter. I'd ask you to look at verses 3 through 5 and ask if you sense something suspicious. The description that Paul gives us there of a ruler, that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, only to bad conduct. 
Do what the ruler says is good, and you'll receive his approval. Don't do what the ruler says is wrong, or literally evil. Uh, Don't do that, because the ruler doesn't bear the sword in vain. He carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This sounds to me just a little bit dreamy. I mean, we... When we hear about submitting to rulers, we immediately think of bad rulers. We immediately look for an opportunity to, if not discredit God's word, but to, to, to at least challenge God's word. That Paul may be writing in an era in which the leader, Nero, wasn't all that bad. And so it could be that verses 3 through 5 are some kind of uh, description of the actual setting in which the Roman Christians find them. The, the reference to taxation, the somewhat good take on governing authorities. It might be Paul's way of connecting with people who are living under the reign of Nero. Well, be that as it may, here's where I want us to go. I want us to uh, consider how to apply this passage. How should we apply this passage? We don't know if the Roman Christians are under a particular duress. But since all authority on earth is subject to King Jesus, our submission actually becomes an avenue for Christian holiness. And, And I want to talk a little bit about how that works. Notice that even in the middle of the passage, Paul never says this. Paul never says this. He never says that all rulers approve of what God calls good and all rulers punish what God calls evil. Even though Paul is speaking somewhat positively in the middle of our passage about governing authorities, he's not saying that all governing authorities rule well. Now, Paul... He is not naive about Roman government. Don't think for a second that Paul is just being naive. And don't think for a second that this scripture would change if Paul had a better understanding of our present leaders. Not for a second. Paul understood very well what it was like to be mistreated by Roman officials, knew very well what it was like to be unjustly beaten and imprisoned by Roman officials. But when he says in verse 4 that a ruler is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, many scholars believe that what Paul is referring to is he's referring to the nature of Roman life at the time that the Romans are living, that this Nero was, was actually uh, served as an exemplary leader of the Roman administration. In fact, in the 16th and the 17th centuries, many Protestant commentators find this passage, this reference to leadership that is good, to be evidence that God's general revelation is good, that God made men and women in his own image, that at some level, because of God's thumbprint stamped upon them, they know that governments work best when governments pursue justice and goodness for the people. That governments work best when governments don't rule for the sake of their own interests, but for the sake of the common good. Calvin says as much when he looks at this passage, verses 3 through 5, that, that here we have some kind of testimony, perhaps, of all humanity being made in God's image. 
Many Protestants quote ancient writers outside of the Christian tradition who, without elevating God, they elevate good government. Number of commentaries looking at this passage. This is just evidence that that God knows how government ought to function and he stamped man and woman accordingly. Paul never says that all rulers are good rulers. But he does say that through general revelation, a ruler should know what is good and what is bad. There's actually an application here. We need to recognize as Christians the wisdom and kindness of God in establishing civil order in the world where we find it. That's not the same thing as saying all rulers rule well. But when it happens, particularly among those who are not followers of Jesus, it's an occasion for us to praise God for his kindness in establishing this order in his great and beautiful common grace. That we need to praise God that there are governments in the world that allow citizens to worship God freely. Joseph. He praised the Egyptian king. Daniel praised the Babylonian king. Paul commands us in 1 Timothy 2.1 to pray for kings. There's an application there. Paul's not saying that all rulers are good rulers. But when we see them, praise God for his common grace that allows Christians to worship. Now, secondly, there's this. You know, Paul also never says that obedience needs to happen at all costs. Were you waiting for me over the course of this sermon to say something like that? I mean, he never says that obedience must happen at all costs. There actually are times for civil disobedience. Now, this is, this is pretty tricky, isn't it? And if you read further in Romans, as you, as you should, uh, look at Romans 14. I think there it is safe to say that two Christians can actually have two different approaches to this aspect of when to disobey uh, civil authorities in a way that's holy and acceptable before God. The classic text for this doctrine is in Acts chapter 5, when Peter uh, says to the high priest and to other Jewish authorities, uh, not, not the first time, but a second time, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. And Paul, he's warned us, don't be conformed to the world. And he's told us to abhor what is evil, to hold fast to what is good. We can think of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego setting aside Nebuchadnezzar's commands. Uh, Daniel uh, himself doing the same thing. In in fact, uh, Paul was well known by the Ephesians to be a man who refused to agree with any emperor who said that he was the only king of the world. Acts 17, verse 7. And it's clear in Scripture. All the way at the end of the Bible, Revelation 20 being but one example that many Christians will die for their faith. Why do you think that is? How do martyrs exist? Many Christians will die for their faith because of their refusal to submit to rulers. Now, Paul, he's, he's not saying, he's not saying that obedience must happen at all costs. As Christians, we may not always agree on when to disobey, how to express this disobedience. Romans 14 may help us navigating through these differences in a way in which we continue to love one another while not uh, stomping upon one another's consciences before God. 
We can think of a passage like Hebrews 10.34 where the writer says to believers, you believers, this is, this is a, a praise, you believers had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property. But notice obviously what's happening there. There are some Christians that are in prison and some Christians that are not in prison. Hebrews 10.34, how does that happen? Some were in prison, some weren't. You see, Paul's not saying that to be a Christian is to uncritically and blindly submit to whoever has authority. It seems like, from Hebrews 10 and elsewhere, there will be some times when it is not a time to submit. So what do you think Paul is really saying? What's the application for first century uh, Christians in Rome? What's the application for 21st century Chattanoogans here? Well, I want us to, t- to look at Romans 13, verse 7, where Paul ends. Not only must you pay the taxes that you owe, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, but what else? What else does Paul say there? He's almost using the subject of taxes to connect the Roman Christians with Nero, a current leader, but then he, he advances the subject. Paul says, so too are you to pay respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I think this bears an awful lot of meditation. Now, this is different, uh, isn't it? I mean, regardless of the quality of governing authorities, Paul knew some were good and some were bad. God actually tells us that there is a respect and an honor that is owed to governing authorities. And that respect and honor seems to be on some level irrespective of the quality of the goodness of those governing authorities. Now, I understand that many of us here will, if you're not thinking it now, you'll think it later today. Well, there are some people for whom respect isn't owed. There are some people for whom honor uh, isn't owed. And I know that many of us believe that. And I know that many of us operate according to this policy in our homes. I have heard many a little theologian say remarkably disrespectful or dishonorable things about various political figures when these little theologians actually can't vote. You and I both know where this comes from. Hearts like yours, hearts like mine. But Paul is serious here. There is a certain dignity that is owed to our leaders. It is sometimes that dignity may be merely by virtue of their age or of their title, not necessarily by the things that they do in their, in their leadership. This is true. But let me return us to those awkward questions that I asked earlier, and then we'll close. In my refusal to submit to those in authority, am I actually doubting the sovereign plans of God and the rightful rule of King Jesus? In getting lost in my lack of respect and lack of honor for whichever ruler I choose, am I actually doubting the sovereign plan of God and the rightful rule of King Jesus? If I'm trying to resist submitting to authorities, what then do I think about the very sovereignty of God, the one who's the king over every king? And then reversing the question again, as if it wasn't awkward enough. Do you believe in God's sovereignty, his plan not just to convert you, but his plan to restore all things, to establish the new heavens and the new earths? Do you believe that? I said earths, plural. 
Please don't email me about that on Monday. Do you believe in God's sovereign plan and the authority of Jesus? Well, then why? Why are you so quickly refusing to submit? Why are you so quickly refusing to show respect and honor to governing authorities? Because all authority on earth is subject to King Jesus. Our submission, our honor, our respect, actually in God's grace, becomes an avenue for Christian holiness. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that there are many ways that we can be holy before you. Forgive us for favoring some of those ways because they feel a bit easier or we're more used to them. And forgive us for neglecting those ways that Scripture tells us are ways of living holy before you. But we'd rather gloss over those. Thank you for your mercy. In the name of our King, amen.